0: Tonight I'm going to deal with just, uh, well not just with, but my main thoughts are going to come from Proverbs 18 and Hebrews 4. Proverbs 18 and 14. (laughs) The spirit of a man will sustain his infirmity, but a wounded spirit, who can bear? The message translation of that says, a healthy spirit conquers adversity. But what can you do when the spirit is crushed? A healthy spirit conquers adversity. But what can you do when the spirit is crushed? Now I mentioned last night that I had a thought that I was going to run with. thought I had something. And two days, about two or three days ago this one came into my mind. And uh, I assume that God would send whoever here tonight who might be in this predicament where over time you've had your tests and your trials where your spirit was able to conquer whatever was going on in your life. Your spirit was able to help you get through the test, the trial, the sickness, the ailment. But there comes a time when the tests and trials have built up so much to where the thing that helps you get over becomes wounded. The spirit becomes wounded. The spirit is the thing that animates your body. The body reflects what is in the spirit. The spirit is the real you. It's the real us. Now in this verse, the word spirit in the Hebrew, in the first clause, is masculine. Because we know that physically, the man is stronger than the woman in the physical realm. Most of the time. But in the second clause of it, where he says, but when the spirit is crushed, the Hebrew writer changes the form of the word from masculine to feminine, meaning that the strength that the spirit had is now gone. The strength that the spirit had to overcome the test and the trials. It was now weak and that it couldn't bear it up. The spirit reigns over the body, but that is the apex of the human makeup. If the spirit weakens, is cast down, or is crushed, it needs something more powerful than itself, something to influence, or animate it. Because we know the spirit animates the body, but what, what gives the spirit its motion? The human spirit needs its maker in order to sustain it. The Bible tells us in Proverbs 15 and 13 that a merry heart maketh the cheerful countenance, but by sorrow of the heart, the spirit is broken. The Living Bible translations of, of Proverbs 17 and 22 says, A cheerful heart does good like medicine, but a broken spirit make one sick. How can your spirit make you better and sick? Depending on its countenance. What is, gives life can turn against you and become poison if it's not right, if the spirit is not right. Any of you that ever been to a restaurant and got food poisoning, you love that restaurant, as long as it was good, made you full when you left. But that one experience of food poisoning, you say, I ain't never going back to that restaurant again. You've been there a hundred times before and it sustained you. But the the same location now has got you feeling like you're about to die I've never had food poisoning but those that have had it tell me that it's you feel really close to death the spirit of man is amazingly resilient. many people have watched and awe as they or even someone they know came out victorious over unfathomable circumstances even doctors have attested to the fact that those with strong spirits and positive outlooks. They heal faster, they heal better. But those who have crushed spirits, they're down, they're depressed, they, they remain in their illness. Some even, even diminish even faster. I've heard some doctors say, you need to surround yourself with good loving people because those, those people that go into surgery that know that they have loved ones waiting on the outside, they have something to live for. But those when nobody shows up, the, the doctors will tell them, get somebody on the phone. Tell them to come down here because you need support. The, the, the spirit needs support. So by sustaining infirmities, it does not mean that we must not feel them. It is to feel but not to sink under the pressure of. That's important. A wound in the body is really a division of one part from the other, which is always painful. And though a spirit cannot be divided... Yet, because a wound causes pain, a spirit which is disordered and suffers pain is said to be wounded. We've heard the phrase, oh, they're a wounded soul. Sometimes we even say it haphazardly. They're just a troubled soul. But a troubled soul is the most dangerous soul to have. We're living in a day where suicide is on the uprise. Folks are killing themselves, taking themselves out because their souls, their spirits are wounded. Some men's spirits are wounded with the disorders and violence of their own passions. They love, or hope, or fear, or desire, or or they grieve immoderately. They they have no, no control over some of these passions. And all passions are very painful when they are in excess. This is why Paul tells us to be moderate in all things. You are to be moderate even in your joy. A person that is happy all the time, 24-7, their entire life, something is very wrong with that soul. Because the Bible tells us that there is a season for everything. Uh, There's a time to cry. There's a time to laugh. But if you laugh and never cry, see, we would think that a person that is always happy, oh, that's a good individual to be. But the psalmist said it was, it was good that I was afflicted. It was good that I went to the house of mourning. So other, others' men's spirits are wounded with a sense of guilt. Their own consciences reproach and shame them. A wounded spirit has no refuge or retreat. It has nothing left to support itself with. The spirit of a man can bear his infirmities, but when the spirit itself is wounded, there is nothing to support that. This wounds our courage, our reason, and it makes all external comforts tasteless and deprives us of all the comforts of religion. A wounded spirit cannot find any support from the considerations of religion unless it find its cure there. This is why so many people in our presence in churches around America are hurting. Yeah, the buildings are full. They come because they heard if you want to be healed, if you want to be restored, if you want to be cleansed, this is the group that you go to. But when they come, their souls are so wounded that when they get there, our religious programs can't give them any comfort because we're not giving them the cure. We deal with the symptoms. I could stop you from coughing, but that don't mean that that fungus on your lungs are gone. When I injured my elbow, the doctor told me when I had my follow-up appointment, I'm glad you're taking your pain medication, but don't take it too long because what you do is you injure yourself. When you medicate with the pain medicine, your body is at ease. You think you're better than you are. Some people think they're better than they are because they can shout. They can speak in tongues. They can go through the antics. That means, oh, I got joy bubbling over. Mm-hmm. But you're doing things. And when he said, when, when you exercise the, the, the arm and you're under the influence of the pain medication, you may be doing more damage than good because you don't feel the pain that's there. And there's a restriction to pain. Pain tells you stop. Right. Pain tells you step back, take a look, take, take notice of me. So we, we can't afford to medicate over-medicate. We we have to feel the pain to some certain extent. Wounded spirits cannot help themselves, nor do others know how to help them. This is another problem in church. We discussed this earlier that we've come and we've turned to the pastor, the deacon, to cure us. And while The gifts of the body are important and we're fitly framed together and there's gifts in the church and there's gifts of the spirit. There's really only one head. The blood that heals only comes from one source. And if we don't point them to Jesus, they'll keep coming to you thinking you got the answer. But you can't help a wounded soul. I might need to say that again. You can't help a wounded soul. Luke 22 and 31, Jesus tells Peter here Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to have you, to sift you like wheat. But I have pleaded in prayer for you that your faith should not completely fall. So when you have repented and turned to me again, strengthen and build up the faith of your brothers. So here we can see the fact that if our faith fails, then our soul becomes wounded. Because the Bible tells us that the just live by faith. Your life is predicated upon faith. Without faith, you have no life. It is a point where hope of sympathy, intervention, deliverance, and ultimately salvation is all forfeited. When you get to the place where the soul is wounded, you can't be comforted. You can't be... Anybody ever dealt with somebody where where nothing you said helped them? And you prayed, Lord, give me something to say. Just give me a word for this individual. And, And the problem is that we weren't supposed to be the one to heal that wound. So he says here, Satan has asked me He's desired. One version says he's demanded. We believe that the devil's been kicked out of heaven and he don't have access. He still has access to the throne of God. And the Bible says that he is the accuser of the brethren, which standeth before the Lord night and day, accusing the brethren. Now, there's a double side to that, because not only does he accuse us to God, but he comes back to us and accuses God before us. So he goes and he tells God. You see that individual? They don't love you. Like Job. He only loves you because you give him stuff. He only loves you because uh, you've got a hedge around about him. Then he comes t- back to you and says, see, God don't love you. If he loved you, you wouldn't even be in the mess you in. But Jesus told him, he said, the devil has come before God's throne for you. But the you wasn't really just Peter. The you in that scripture is plural. So he was really talking about all, all 12. And he desires to sift you like wheat. Sifting is a process where that which is pure passes through the sifter while the impure particles are left in the sifter to be tossed out because they're useless. Obtaining a fine powdery substance is not the point of sifting or sieving in the biblical context. We've heard people explain sifting and all they can think about is when grandmama, grandmama was making a cake. And they had flour that was already pretty much sifted. They just sifted it a little more to make your powdery. And then they tell you, oh, the devil wants to grind you down. That is not really the, the biblical text because, number one, the Bible never talked about sifting flour. It talks about sifting wheat. So if we got, want to find out what he's talking about, we got to go and see how they sifted wheat, not flour. It is the separation of the pure from the impure. The devil desired to sift Peter away from Jesus. Hence, his faith would fall. The devil doesn't want to grind us to find powder. He simply wants to separate us away from Jesus, knowing that without him, we can do nothing. Why go through extra work of trying to grind somebody to powder when all you got to do is just separate them? From their strength he don't care if you're healthy he don't care if you have fun as long as he can separate you and give you a disconnection between your savior and yourself he's fine he go on to the next person this is why we have to watch about watch out for our emotional highs of religion when we think we're okay but we're crying ourselves to sleep at night we say we have joy we say we're highly favored But we really don't know if he cares for us or not. Deep down in the back of our minds, we we, we say, oh, he's everything to me. He's my joy. He's my strength. And we sing the songs. We clap our hands. But when the benediction is given and we go home, what's the story then? And this, again, we were talking about today. It's being real before God. I would never chide anybody who came into a service in our midst, no matter what the setting was, and they were broken down and crying and depressed. They're feeling their emotion. It's important for them to feel. We've taught people, don't feel what you're going through. So in order to prevent our spirits from being crushed, we need intervention. He said, I prayed for you. Even though he desires to if he is weak. I prayed for you that your faith would fail you not. So we need an advocate who will notice the dire strait that we're in, have empathy or sympathy for us, having been through the same process, and step in to thwart the attack. If it wasn't for the intervention of Jesus, it seems to be implied that the devil would have had his way with us and we would be utterly helpless. Yeah, we thought it was our prayer life. We thought it was us working for the Lord. (laughs) If you didn't have an advocate in Jesus, one that went to the Father, I prayed for you. That your faith fail you not. Here is a lesson, too, concerning the treatment of others. We should be more careful not to wound a brother's spirit than we are to refrain from doing bodily injury. And when I thought about that point, I thought about the marriages that are in trouble and the harsh words that are traded. I thought about the broken relationship between a mother and daughter and a father and son, the harsh words that are traded that can never be taken back. They can be apologized for. You know, we're created like God. We're created in his image and after his likeness. He is a God of word. And he says that when I send my word out, it doesn't return unto me void. So what do you think your word is going to do? It's going to go out and it's going to accomplish what you sent it out to do. And when you're angry and you say stuff, it's going to affect that person. It's going to accomplish what you sent out to do in your anger and your frustration. That's why it's good to be quiet, slow to speak, swift to hear. Don't always have to have an answer for everything. Sometimes it's good to just sit back and shut up. Because when you wound the soul, the soul can't be healed by you. The, The soul is wounded. The body may be healed by medical applications, but the soul is more severe in its effects, and it is often irreversible. So we got people now. One or two things were said to them when they were six, seven, eight. Now they're 45, 50, 55. And guess what? Still fighting it. Because what, what was said wounded their soul. So I want to talk about three characters in the Bible who had wounded souls and how they went about their healing or how they handled the wounding of their soul. First one we're going to look at I should do this in a different order I should start with Judas But I'm going to start with Peter But in Luke 22 Let's get verse 54 So they seized him And led him to the high priest's residence And Peter followed at a distance Now we hear preachers run with that one See Peter was following from a distance See if he really loved Jesus He would have went with him No because if you read earlier, Jesus said that the scriptures might be fulfilled when he was come, came out of the Garden of Gethsemane. He told them that when the shepherd is taken, the flock will be scattered. So he told them, you guys go your way now. All of you go your way. That it might be fulfilled. Yet we want to look at that scripture and say, well, you know, the devil's after the pastor. Because if they get to the pastor, the sheep is going to be scattered. But the scripture was written about Jesus. It wasn't written about the pastors. Moses said there's a shepherd that's going to be raised up in the end. Not shepherds, but one shepherd. And when that shepherd is taken away, his sheep are going to be scattered. So Jesus told them, go your way. He had told Peter, don't follow me to where I'm going. It's time now for me to go to the cross. But Peter followed from a distance. So that following from a distance was actually a better thing than we have been preaching prior years. The soldiers, verse 55, lit a fire in the courtyard and sat around it for warmth. And Peter joined them there. A servant girl noticed him in the firelight and began staring at him. Finally, she spoke, this man was with Jesus. Peter denied it. Woman, he said, I don't even know the man. After a while, someone else looked at him and said, You must be one of them. No, sir, I am not, Peter replied. About an hour later, someone else flatly stated, I know this fellow is one of Jesus' disciples, for both of them are from Galilee. But Peter said, Man, I don't know what you're talking about. And as he said the words, a rooster crowed. At that moment, Jesus turned and looked at Peter. Then Peter remembered what he had said before the rooster crows tomorrow morning. You will deny me three times. And Peter walked out of the courtyard crying bitterly. Peter experienced a wounded spirit right here. Peter was told by Jesus exactly what would unfold in this story. This was nothing new. They usually didn't challenge Jesus on what he said. Before, he would say, let's go on to the other side. Go here. When you you get here, there's going to be a man with with a pitcher of water. He's going to tell you where to prepare the supper. And as soon as they got there, they met a man with a pitcher of water. If you go do this, this will happen. They did it, and it happened. All through the ministry of Jesus, they followed his direction. But here, Peter challenges Jesus. Jesus says, Peter, he says, first of all, all of you guys are going to be ashamed of me. Peter says, oh, no. They've never challenged him on what he said would come to pass. But now he's challenging the knowledge of Jesus. When Jesus says, you guys are going to be ashamed of me, Peter says, no, Lord, I wouldn't be ashamed of you. Not only that, but I would suffer for you. Not only that, in fact, I would die for you. So we didn't move from shame to suffering to death. Well, we just read Peter didn't do any of it. (laughs) He neglected him. He denied him. And then cussed about it. Peter not only said that he would never be ashamed of Jesus, but he took it further claiming his willingness to suffer and die with Jesus. And when the time came, not only was Peter ashamed of Jesus, but he denied even knowing him. This Jesus also predicted. Not only will you abandon me, but you will deny me. Because Peter challenged Jesus... Because Jesus would have left the statement at at that. You guys are going to be ashamed of me. But then Peter had to challenge him. No, Lord, I'll I'll die for you. He said, Peter, before the cock crow, not only will you be ashamed of me, but you personally are going to deny me. You're going to be worse than the 11. And then he challenged him again. I would never do that. See, we have to be careful with our proclamations, we have to be careful. So after the resurrection of Jesus, Peter learned his lesson of mindlessly answering his loyalty to Jesus. Only when Jesus asked him the same question three times. Now, after Jesus got up from the grave, he appeared to Mary and then he appeared to a few. And then uh, then he had to appear to them on the lake and they went fishing. And Jesus and Peter came out on the water and greeted the risen Savior. Then Jesus meets them again and he says, Peter, do you love me? Now, Peter ain't learned this lesson yet. Peter, do you love me? Yeah, Lord, you know, I love you, Peter. Do you love me? Lord, you know, I love you. Now, this is the same Peter that said, I'll never deny you right before he was crucified. Now he's risen and being questioned again. He hasn't learned his lesson to be quiet and say, Lord, you know, once he said, Lord, you know, Jesus didn't question him anymore. Now, another thing about Peter, you have to read Mark's version of the story. I'm not going to read it, but you can read it on your own. Because Mark's account of Peter's denial seems to be the most detailed, noting that Jesus actually predicted that the rooster would crow twice in three denials. And the way Mark writes this is that after Peter's first denial, the cock crowed once. Now, you would have thought, <laughs> okay. Maybe Jesus had something. Maybe I'm going to back up now. The cock didn't crow the second time until Peter denied him two more times. He had three chances. And after the first one, he had a warning. Peter was doing exactly what Jesus told him he would do. And then after that, that final crow, Jesus looked at him. And something filled Peter's heart. A depression came over him like never before. I can only imagine what that look must have looked like. The one that you said, I will never be ashamed of you. This is the one that says, Lord, I know that you are the Christ. I I know it. Well, to Jews, Christ is God. How could you deny God? You're, You're in the worst position. So the Bible says, Peter left the courtyard and wept bitterly. So there's one crushed spirit. Now, the good thing about Peter is that he had hope because Jesus also told him in the story, you're going to deny me before the night's over, before morning comes. But when you're converted, that means that God knew that Peter was going to repent. And that probably gave Peter a little hope in in recalling the word, because don't you think that when when he recalled the word, when he. When Jesus looked at him after the final crowing of the rooster, that he remembered the words of Jesus. He didn't remember the words of Jesus just, that just said, you're going to deny me. But he also recollected, ah, there's a conversion for this. There's a conversion for my wounded spirit. And then after I do that, then I can strengthen the brethren. And this is how Peter was later able to tell the church that the devil is as a roaring lion walking about whom he may seeking whom he may devour he's telling the church exactly what jesus told him but he didn't believe it but now that he's experienced it now he could tell the church the devil wants to sift you too now the next character is judas and the reason i dealt with these are is we go we could go through the bible and find a whole bunch of folks whose spirit were wounded But I dealt with one chronologically order of events that all happened within two days. And within that time, there were so many spirits crushed that we can see the power of God working here. Judas was handpicked by Jesus, just like the other 11. In fact, John 6 and 70 says that Jesus chose 12 and one of them was the devil. Now, it's interesting that he says that because... He chose one that was a devil, but the Bible tells us that Satan entered Judas's heart at a certain point. That means that that he knew the beginning from the end from the beginning. When he chose the 12, see, we thought he was around. He was going around choosing saints. He was choosing sinners. But this one wasn't a sinner. One was a devil because he knew what the end result would be. Satan didn't enter Judas's heart until after the woman came and poured the precious ointment on Jesus and anointed him for his death. And they all said, Lord, that was precious anointing. We could have got money for that. Judas was the treasurer. He was the money man of the 12. He held the money back. It was after that particular thing that the Bible says, then Satan entered Judas's heart. There was always something in Judas And Jesus gave him, knowing that he was a thief in his heart, that he worshiped money. Jesus made him the treasurer of the group. So we got to be careful with what God gives us because he might just give us the thing that's going to become our biggest test, our biggest trial, our biggest temptation. And it's up to us to depend on him to give us the faith to overcome it. It was after that that Satan entered Judas's heart. But Jesus called him a devil when he first chose him. The Bible speaks of John, who laid his head in the bosom of Jesus, the inner circle, James, John, and Peter. This is why we can't get jealous when somebody has something that you don't. Because out of the 12, some of them didn't need the personal closeness Mm -hmm. that the three inner circle needed. Plus, God decided okay, I'm gonna give these three special revelation. The others could have got jealous. Oh, why did he take me up to the Mount of Transfiguration? I want to see Moses and Elijah too. What makes them so special? John, why are you always laying on Jesus' chest? Well, what's wrong with you? Why don't you move over? Let somebody else get next to the man. But when it came to the Last Supper, Jesus said, I've desired to have this last dinner with y'all. And then he tells him that this one of you here that's going to betray me, you're going to be responsible for my death. What? The, you handpicked us to preach gospel to the world, yet you're telling us that, that one of us sitting at this table is going to be responsible for your death. They said, well, is it me, Lord? Is it me? Is it, is it me? Peter said, is it me? Matthew said, is it me? And Jesus says, whoever gets served first with me is the one and that happened to be Jesus and he told you Ju- I'm sorry Ju- Judas and he told Judas go and do what you got to do notice that Jesus never fights anything he 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 lets things happen he cuz Jesus was getting ready to have to feel his infirmity Peter had to feel the infirmity the sickness the separation the sifting that happened he had to feel it Judas now is about to feel so after Judas betrayed Christ he later wanted to undo what he did and when the priest made him carry his own guilt the priest said it's already done you came to us and delivered the man to us and then the Bible says that after he went to the priest he looked for a convenient moment to betray Jesus we got to watch out for convenient moments too we wait for the right times to do what we've been wanting to do back in our spirits. We say, oh, I got the freedom to do it now. I got money now. Judas looked for a convenient moment to do his dirt. He wanted to do it on the, you know, on the slide when the, when the crowd wasn't around. And he said, well, let's not do it now because it's the Passover and it's going to be a big uproar because everybody respects Jesus. Jesus has healed everybody he's come in contact with. So the priests say, what's done is done. And then the priests couldn't even spend the money once Judas came and threw it back at them. Because they they had more respect for the word of God than Judas did. Saying, the Bible tells us that we can't put dirty money that paid for the murder of somebody. So they couldn't even take the money back. So now Judas' spirit is broken. He goes out from the priest and his spirit is broken. Just like Peter's spirit was broken when Jesus said, Turned and looked at him after his denial. But Judas didn't have a word that said, oh, when you are converted, then shared the gospel with somebody else. He told Judas, it'll be better uh, that you were never born. Yeah. Wow. A strong spirit can help us conquer our illnesses, our tests, our trials. But a wounded spirit, what can you do? So Judas realizes there's no help for me. Because once what has come to pass and you realize that God spoke it and it's irreversible, then you have no other choice. So Judas goes out and he hangs himself. The Bible says about a man that it, uh, a, a name is more precious than silver and gold. And the day that you die... It's better than the day you were born because you have a lifetime to do what's right. Judas squandered his moment to have a greater name in death than he did in birth. And to this day, nobody wants to name their baby Judas. His spirit was crushed. He was in great despair because Satan had sifted him from Jesus. Remember, Judas was part of the plural you. Satan desires to sift you all. Judas was included. There's a third person whose spirit was crushed in this story, and his name is Jesus. In Isaiah 53, the suffering Messiah is portrayed. One interesting thing is the emphasis put on the fact that he didn't open his mouth. Not a mumbling word. They beat him. They plucked his beard. They stripped him naked, they put thorns in his head, they nailed his hands and his feet and he didn't say nothing. Peter had a response for everything Jesus said. He didn't know how to shut up. Judas, he couldn't contain his greed. Remember any passion that doesn't have limits to it will lead you to a wounded soul. But Jesus says nothing. And this is why the Hebrew writer says, study how he did it. Because he despised the shame. The shame that many of us carry through all our life. Jesus simply threw the shame off. On the cross, they attempted to give him vinegar mixed with gall, which was a common custom to alleviate the suffering. They wanted to, somebody had mercy on Jesus in his dying moment. And and they took the, the sob and put vinegar on it with gall and gave it to him because it it was a painkiller but Jesus wouldn't drink it the Bible says like the doctor told me don't take the medicine too much because you need to feel the pain so you will know your restrictions he didn't say a word he felt the pain Jesus wanted to embrace the fullness of our suffering All the infirmities, all of our diseases, all of our sin, all of our sicknesses, he endured the cross. He endured it. He felt it. He embraced it all. Yet we want to shun every feeling of pain we have. It was good that I was afflicted. It is better to go to the house of mourning than to the house of mirth. Why? Because pain is a part of this world. And your victory in the end depends on how you felt the pain, how you endured the pain, how you came out of the pain, how you were able to tell God and tell somebody else about the pain and his greatness. So my second main scripture, Hebrews 4, Verse number 14, seeing then that we have a great high priest that is passed into the heavens, Jesus, the son of God, it says, let us hold fast our profession. That's that testimony that you carry that I went through A, B, C, and D, but God stood with me. God brought me out. Hold fast to the profession for we have not a high priest. And here's the the main thought of my lesson. We have not a high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities. Let us therefore come boldly unto the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. Notice that this didn't say that he's touched by our infirmities. But it says that he's touched by the feeling of our infirmity. You've got to feel your infirmity. And this is why Jesus didn't say a mumbling word. This is why Jesus said, I don't want your medication. I want to feel this thing. Because the greater feeling of pain, the greater the victory. The more my spirit was wounded, the greater my victory will be when God heals and turn my situation around. It is the feeling that means everything to God. It is the feeling that makes our triumphs that much more spectacular. Too many of us have spent so much time trying not to feel that we have been unable to embrace, number one, just how resilient our own spirit is, and number two, just how awesome God's power is. There is a time and a season for everything, but all things will be made beautiful at God's designated time, in being tempted in every area, now the Bible never said that he just suffered every single temptation that man suffered. It says that he was tempted in all areas, the Greek says, all areas. That means the main areas that the Bible points out was the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes and the pride of life and this is what jesus took the devil took jesus to a high pinnacle and said all this i'll give to you and then he said if you bow down and worship me i'll give you all this stuff but jesus always resisted him now those those areas of temptation have many different roles that it will take you down but the area the the likeness of it is exactly the same In being tempted in every area, Jesus would be able to secure us. Once Peter fully felt the crushing of his spirit, he was later able to strengthen the brothers only because he was converted. And after experiencing his sifting, he would later tell the church, Satan desires to sift you like he sifted me. Tried to sift Judas. He worked on Judas. But it didn't work on me because God had already spoken a word over my life that I would repent, that I would be converted, that my my spirit would turn back to God. So as we've gone through our minds, all of the things that are currently piercing our souls tonight, I don't know what everybody's going through in here. I assume that somebody must have been at the point to where their spirit was about to be crushed or otherwise I don't think I'd have this. Many of us have been echoing one question in our mind. How long? You may not say it, but your spirit rings it out all the time. But it's common because in Psalms 13, 1 and 2, it says, how long will you forget me, Lord? Forever? How long will you look the other way when I am in need? How long must I be hiding daily anguish in my heart? How long shall my enemy have the upper hand? Psalm 35 and 17 says, Lord, how long will you stand there doing nothing? Act now and rescue me, for I have but one life, and these young lions are out to get me. Psalm 74 and 9 through 10 says, there's nothing left to show that we are your people. Sometimes we feel like that. I don't have anything to show that I'm God's son. My life right now don't look nothing like christ the prophets are gone and who can say when it all will end how long O oh god will you allow our enemies to dishonor your name will you let them get away with this forever psalm 80 and 4 O oh jehovah god of heaven's armies how long will you be angry and reject our prayers some of us how long lord will you go on ignoring every prayer that i prayed Oh Jehovah, Psalm 89 and 46 How long will this go on? Will you hide yourself from me forever? How long will your wrath burn like fire? And these are the things that the devil plants in your minds Remember he's accusing God to you He doesn't hear your prayer He's left you alone He's angry with you So when, when, a, when a lot of us sees God as angry Instead of heartbroken we could deal with heartbreak because there's a vulnerability there that is very human-like. But when he's angry, well, he's mad. I, I better run and hide somewhere. I don't. I don't want to face the angry God. So it causes you to be a recluse. You go and hide. Psalm ninety and thirteen through fourteen. Oh Jehovah, come and bless us. How long will you delay? So so now I, maybe I think that God is going to answer me. But now I'm thinking as God is delaying when the Bible always says that he was always at the right time at the right place. Yes. Jesus, if you had come three or four days ago, my brother wouldn't be dead. What, what, <laughs> but the Bible already said that Jesus stayed where he was on purpose. Right. He's not delayed. He, he's doing what he's doing on purpose with you. Uh, he has a will. He has a plan. He ain't gonna let you mess it up. But the just live by faith. But you've been sifted to where your faith is gone. Turn away your anger from us and satisfy us in our earliest youth with your loving kindness, giving us constant joy to the end of our lives. So now I don't believe that what I'm in is any display of your loving kindness. And I can't have joy in this state. Joy is not predicated. On what you're going through Your joy is predicated on who God is to you Those are the how long questions So God's answer To your questions of how long Why When, where Paul deals with it in 2 Corinthians 12 and 5 Of such a one will I glory Yet of myself I will not glory But in my infirmities And he said unto me My grace, verse number nine, is sufficient for thee, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, will I rather glory in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Now, we want to say, Lord, I want to know you and your power. I want the power of Pentecost. I want the power of the first century church. Well, the first century church had to suffer through infirmities but they were considered the most powerful group that ever lived in Christendom. We gotta think about these things because we've been represented and given a Christ that is false. The Christ that that some of us have been introduced to and presented is not the Christ of the scriptures. The things that that we say that he stands for, they're, they're not biblical. Some of us have taken years to finally get up enough um, to go and read it for ourselves and say, oh, now I get why I'm in the predicament I'm in. Now I get why my spirit is being crushed. So just like he did for Peter, Jesus, as our great high priest, has passed through the heavens and he's taken his rightful place on the throne. Now, most of us, when you think of a throne, what do you think of? You, you, you think of power? You think of majesty? You think of somebody that, that is completely in control their word is their bond the bible tells us about the judgment seat of christ it tells us about the great white throne judgment it it tells us about all the, the judgments of god and that represents his throne but here the bible says come boldly to the throne of grace now this goes back to the temple of the old testament where he said put a mercy seat above the ark of the covenant but I want you to put a curtain there. So there you have mercy that you can't get to. It's almost like teasing a kid. I, I, look at all this candy daddy bought. Now I'm going to put it up here in the top where you can't get it. And the kid knows that the candy's there. And the kid comes to you asking, Daddy, can I have some candy? The Old Testament church, Lord, we, we want mercy. The, he said you can't have it. It ain't the right time of the year yet because the high priest can only go in once a year. His mercy is hidden. His mercy is concealed. But here he tells us that because he opened not his mouth, because he is acquainted with the feeling of our infirmity. Now he can he can secure those that attempt it. And then he tells those that attempt it. That's been saying, how long will you be angry? How long will you not love me? How long will you delay your coming? He says to them, now you can come boldly to the throne of grace and you can get all the mercy you want. In fact, the mercy is renewed every morning. So Matthew quotes the Old Testament and says that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet, saying that Jesus took our infirmities and he bare our sicknesses. He was sinless. The only difference between us and Christ is that he was tempted. He did not sin. We're tempted and can't help and can't stop from sinning. Fact, if you say you have no sin, you're a liar. But after the spirit has been converted, John 3 says something very powerful. And this will dovetail with what Peanut talked about earlier today. And that whosoever is born of God does not commit sin. Now, that's a great statement right there, right? For his seed remains in him. But he says something here, and he cannot sin. What? How can I, a sinner, and you tell me I'm a lie if I say I have no sin, but yet you tell me here that because your seed is in me, I cannot sin because he is born of God. Now, that ain't a a mess up of translation. We, We got to believe that John says he cannot sin if you're walking with God. If you're in Christ, you cannot sin. Now, Paul said that my life is hid in Christ, right? If you put me in Christ, when you put Peter in Christ in the sifter before Jesus died on the cross, Satan was able to shake the sifter. Remember, that which is pure falls through because it's going to be used. And that which is impure stays on top to be tossed out. So here Jesus, he he passes the test. He falls through the sifter. Peter stays on top, tossed out, crushed. He goes out, weeps bitterly. Judas, sifted with Jesus, both of them in there. Satan shakes it up. Jesus falls through because he's pure. He's sinless. Judas is left in it. Judas is tossed out. Here now, after he's risen, we've been born again of the spirit. Peter tells us that the devil is as a lion, roaring, walking about, seeking whom he may devour. He's still sifting. But every time he sifts a child of God, there's nothing left in the pan. Because Paul said my, my life is hid in Christ. So when he sifts me, I pass through with Christ because I'm hidden. I'm camouflaged in the glory of Christ. So I cannot sin. Because that which is sin is thrown out and will be burned up. And this is the only way that your broken spirit, your crushed spirit, your bruised spirit can have healing and restoration it must be hid in christ Mm -hmm. we've got to get to the place to where we hide in christ too many of us come out of the ark too many think of ourselves we we diagnose ourselves we come up with our own medications what jesus gave me that's not gonna work so i'm gonna go out and i'm gonna gonna get my own medicine so i could heal my own spirit I'm going to go read the book. I'm going to listen to T.D. Jakes and all that's fine. Get some knowledge. But at the end of the day, your life must be hid in Christ. He's got to be above all of that other stuff. Even like she said earlier today, searching the scripture for knowledge. Knowledge is not enough. It has to be personal relationship. You must be camouflaged so when the devil sees you, he doesn't see you. He sees Christ. That's why the Bible says that the wicked one cannot touch him. Because Christ is untouchable and I'm in him, my life is hid in him, I'm untouchable. So, the things that tend to crush my spirit, I have a different view of now. Because I know that Jesus told Peter what he told him only so that he can go and help somebody else. And this is why Hebrews says, therefore, seeing that you have a high priest, he said, keep your profession, keep your testimony. Peter, keep the testimony. I want you to tell people what I did for you when I looked at you that night and your spirit was crushed. When you realize I just felt the Savior. Exodus 23 and says, also, you shall not oppress the stranger. He's talking to Israel here because, you know, the heart of a stranger Seeing that you were strangers in the land of Egypt. So he chides Israel and says, you have no excuse to ever treat a stranger like you were treated before I came and brought you out. In other words, I want you not to forsake your profession of me. Talk to your children about it. Write it upon your forehead. When you wake up in the morning, talk about it. In noonday, talk about it. In the going uh, down of the sun, talk about it. Don't lose your testimony because the Bible says they overcame by the word of their testimonies because they had a relationship with God. So we've got to decide. When we look at Judas and we look at Peter and we look at Jesus— Every one of us has to make a decision whether we will go through life pretending like Judas, fighting like Peter, or yielding to God's perfect will like Jesus. And I ask you, will it be the kiss? Will it be the sword? Or will it be the cup? If your soul's in dire straits, your your life depends on this. Is it going to be the kiss? Because we're good at being fake. Judas was fake. He was pretentious. Or is it gonna be Peter who just had to speak his mind on any given occasion, always had a comeback. And Jesus tested his face with that because it's interesting how you read different gospels because they all saw it different. That in one of the gospels, Jesus, when he tells them to come with me to the garden of Gethsemane and and every one of you now, it's time for you uh, to, to get your swords. He told them, go get your swords. So Peter, when they came to get Jesus, he said, well, you told me to get my sword. So I'm going to take my sword off and cut the man's ear off. And then Jesus says, what are you doing? Put your sword away. Then Jesus heals the man and puts his ear back on. So what, Jesus, do you want me to use a sword or you want me to leave it at home? Why would you tell me to bring my sword if you don't want me to use it? He was testing him to see if he believed it's time for me to go do this. You should be comfortable when Jesus needs to walk away from you for a few days. You got to be comfortable enough to know that his word will keep your situation intact when you don't see him. That's what he was testing Peter when he said, go get your swords. Then when it's time for me to go, I'm telling you, the time has come. I got to go to the cross. So will you fight like Peter? Some of us are fighting the will of God. Lord, I refuse to accept that this is my plot. Yeah. I re- I'm not going through this. That's what we tell the Savior. I ain't going through this. And you add more frustration to your situation because you refuse to accept the will of God for your life. So will it be the kiss, the sword, or the cup?